0: Iron Brown was given a ride to school the morning of October 7, 2002. The 13-year-old normally took the bus, but he had those privileges taken away from him for a few days. The bus driver caught him biting down on a Twizzler that a fellow student had stealthily handed to him. Eating food on the school bus was prohibited at Benjamin Tasker Middle School. Iron's aunt, Tanya Brown, drove him to school that day. She dropped him off shortly after 8am. As she pulled away, she heard what sounded like a gunshot. Then Iron let out a yell. Tanya Brown drove back to where her nephew was. Severely injured, Iron climbed into the car. He struggled to breathe. He told his aunt that he loved her. His aunt told him he was going to be okay. The urgent care center was one and a half miles away. She drove there as fast as she could. Honking her horn, running a red light, all while trying to keep Iron awake and alert. He's
1: mm-hmm. still breathing, but he looks pale. And he has hurt Iron. I gotta go fast! Let me go fast! Miss Brown,
0: please! Tanya Brown arrived at the clinic and screamed for help as loudly as she could. A security guard and nurse burst through the door, and Iron was placed in a wheelchair and brought inside. After the shooting, circumstances had to be just right and in perfect order for Iron Brown to have any hope for survival. If the DC area sniper spree hadn't seeped into the national consciousness by the morning of October 7th, it certainly did after the news broke of a boy being shot just a few yards from the entrance of his school.
2: Now all of our victims have been innocent, have been defenseless, but now we're stepping over the line because our children don't deserve
0: this. Presented by Law & Crime, this is Chasing Ghosts, The Hunt for the D.C. Snipers. D.C. area's first seven sniper shootings claimed six victims, and all of them occurred within a 10-mile stretch and during a 28-hour time frame on October 2nd and 3rd. All but one of those shootings occurred in Montgomery County, Maryland. The last occurred in Washington, D.C. The Commonwealth of Virginia had been spared to this point, but that would change less than 18 hours after the D.C. shooting. So before the shooters staked out that school in Bowie, Maryland, they decided to venture to a relatively faraway place, Fredericksburg, Virginia. The city, home to the University of Mary Washington, is located along the corridor between Richmond to the south and Washington DC to the north. During mid-afternoon, October 4th, 43-year-old Caroline Sewell was in the parking lot of the Spotsylvania Mall outside Fredericksburg. The mall is located along Route 3, near Interstate 95. Sewell, a mother of two, parked in front of a Michaels store. She bought a few items, walked outside, and loaded them into her van. Sewell had finished loading her van and reached upward for the hatch door. Then came the unmistakable sound of a rifle shot. Sewell collapsed onto the asphalt beneath her feet. The bullet struck Sewell in the lower back, more toward her right side. The bullet exited through her lower chest and got lodged in her van. She was taken to local Mary Washington Hospital and eventually airlifted to a trauma center in Fairfax County, where she was listed in stable condition. Police in Montgomery County, Maryland were pretty convinced that the shooting was the work of the sniper because the Spotsylvania County shooting resembled other shootings in so many ways. It took place in a dense retail section of town. Witnesses heard a boom. The victim was shot in the back and Sewell was parked outside a Michael's store. The very first shooting that took place a couple days earlier in suburban Maryland occurred at a Michael's location. The major difference about this particular shooting was that the person who was shot was about 75 miles south of Montgomery County and the victim in this case was likely to survive. Sewell was very lucky. She spent about a week in the hospital and afterward healed fast. The bullet struck her liver, one of her lungs, and her diaphragm. It also cracked a few of her ribs before it exited her body. But none of her injuries were life-threatening. Sewell would have just one surgery, during which a surgeon inserted a mesh to cover up the sizable hole in her diaphragm. She made a full recovery. Patrick McNerney, the lead Montgomery County police detective assigned to the first sniper shooting two days earlier, was told by his supervisor that he needed to get to the scene of the Fredericksburg shooting. Authorities needed the bullet fragments to confirm that the shooting was related to the series of homicides in suburban Maryland. McNerney was told he was going to have to take a helicopter to get there. No aircraft, not even police aircraft, are permitted to take a direct route from Maryland to central Virginia without taking a detour. But the helicopter carrying McNerney had special clearance.
3: So I get over there. Get into the helicopter, the pilot makes contact with air traffic control. Say, listen, here's my call sign. We're going from Rockville to Fredericksburg. Air traffic controller goes, sir, you can't go that way. Restricted airspace, you have to vector around. He goes, you didn't hear my call sign. He says it again. And the air traffic controller is like, enjoy your flight. Watch out for the planes.
0: Two police snipers were on the helicopter with the detective. While in the air, their helicopter passed the medevac helicopter transporting Sewell to the trauma center in Fairfax County. The helicopter landed, and McNerney was brought to the scene of the shooting. The mangled bullet was carefully pulled from the victim's van. Spotsylvania County deputies agreed to turn over the evidence to McNerney so that he could deliver it to the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives Lab in Maryland. But that took some convincing.
3: So as I'm standing there watching the Spotsylvania guys get it out, convinced the sheriff there that I'm taking this directly back to Montgomery County and once i land i'm going directly to the atf lab and their plan was to well we'll send it to virginia state police like this thing's going to be analyzed tonight or real early tomorrow morning so they acquiesced i had that bag head back out that helicopter and i'm sitting on the inboard seat at this point There's a sniper guy sit on the outboards doors are open pretty windy in there i'm holding on for dear life to this bag i was like oh my god if i lose this i might as well just jump out but uh, made it back, got down the ATF. Nobody answered, so I put it into property. And just a couple hours later, somebody took it down there first thing in the morning. And then they made the comparison.
0: The night of Sewell's shooting, Montgomery County Police Chief Charles Moose held a media conference during which he confirmed that the bullet fragments taken from the body of Pascal Charlot, the man who had been shot in Washington, DC, the previous night, matched the bullet fragments at some of the shootings that took place earlier in the day in Maryland. They were all shot by the same shooter or tandem of shooters. Moose said, quote, whoever is involved in this madness, rethink what you're doing, turn yourself in, surrender to law enforcement, End quote. In a few days, Moose would have an even more pointed message for the shooters. Law enforcement had not yet received any communication from the snipers, but they were soon going to. The next morning, the mangled bullet taken from the seawell scene was a confirmed match with the others, as expected. That would be the last major development before the end of a nightmarish week for police. The media had little to report on as far as the investigation was concerned, but Moose did disclose the type of bullet that was fired by the shooter, a 223 round commonly used in various semi-automatic rifles. National news outlets by this point had cited unnamed sources suggesting that the shooter was part of a two-person team. They also kept repeating earlier statements that the snipers may be traveling in a white box truck. Beyond that, there was little else to report. Moose kept fielding questions from inquiring reporters about whether schools would be closed until the shooter or shooters were caught. In response, Moose discouraged parents from keeping their kids at home or showing up at schools to take them home before classes were over. He assured residents that the area's schools were safe. The snipers were listening. Upon hearing those comments made by the chief, they responded in a terrifying way. On the night of October 6th, they canvassed the area around Benjamin Tasker Middle School. By the following evening, Local and national newscasts were airing a stream of stories about that morning's school shooting and Bowie president said tonight americans will not live in fear the thought was right the reality is not we saw a shot today of a mother taking her child from school today clutching that child's hand rushing him out of the school into the car the child's head ducked low the end of a terrifying school day for kids in the area a 13 year old gunned down as he arrived this morning the latest in a killing spree or shooting spree that started last week tonight this young man is fighting for his life that was CNN's Aaron Brown, who led off his October 7, 2002 Newsnight broadcast with the story of the shooting of 13-year-old Iron Brown, a student at Benjamin Tasker Middle School in Bowie, a city in Prince George's County, Maryland, located northeast of Washington, D.C. Iron Brown was shot early that morning. It was the first time since the shooting started five days earlier that somebody in Maryland was shot outside of Montgomery County. And it was also the first time that a child was shot, something that horrified everyone. Iron Brown, like Caroline Sewell, survived his injuries. He is now 33 years old. He lives and works in Atlanta and has a child of his own. Iron agreed to talk me through all that he experienced that morning 20 years ago.
3: I can remember
2: everything vividly like it happened yesterday.
0: That Monday was the last day of Iron's bus suspension. He went to school like it was any other day. He remembers asking a school faculty member whether it was still safe to go outside during school hours. He was assured that he would be safe. So on the morning of October 7th, Iron got out of his aunt's car. He was there early, so he was going to wait outside until the doors were unlocked. His aunt pulled toward the road. At that moment, Iron placed his book bag down onto the sidewalk And just as that unmistakable sound filled the air, he crumpled to the ground.
2: And it was just like a loud bang, uh, like a grenade went off. And just instinctively, I knew that I was shot.
0: There was no mistaking it. Immediately, he felt the acute pain that comes with taking a bullet to the abdomen.
2: And then of course <laughs> the pain, I immediately went into shock. It definitely knocked me down to the ground. It wasn't like any blood was gushing out or I had a lot of blood on my shirt or anything like that because it was a hollow tip bullet. So it all of the damage was more so internal. The bullet, you know, broke into pieces as soon as it pierced me and there was no exit wound. It was just, you know, a burning sensation.
0: Iron called out to his aunt. Meanwhile, a teacher heard the commotion from inside the school and ran outside to investigate. She couldn't believe what Iron was telling her. I mean, I told her that I was shot. But in her defense, she didn't know any better. She didn't know if
4: I was just playing around. But during that time, my aunt screamed for me and told me to come
2: back to the car. You know, I helped myself up. I went into the car. Thankfully, she worked at the same hospital I was admitted to, Children's Hospital. You know, even though we give all the glory to the Most High, I believe all her effort definitely saved my life, for sure. Because rather than waiting for the ambulance, she drove me to the nearest clinic, which was right around the corner.
0: The car ride to the clinic was a short one, but it didn't feel that way to Iron.
2: I was preparing to die. There's no way around it. I was losing a lot of blood. I was turning pale. I had to roll the window down to help air flow in and out of my lungs. It was obviously becoming difficult to breathe. You know, I was covering my wound, applying pressure to it. I was praying. I was telling my aunt how much I loved her. And of course, she was, you know, championing me to, you know, just keep breathing, just, you know, fight through it.
0: The doctor who was working at the Bowie Health Center that day had military trauma care experience. He knew what he was dealing with. He immediately called for a helicopter, which was only a couple minutes away. Iron was airlifted to Children's Hospital in Washington, DC, which was only about 10 minutes from the health center. Several bags of blood matching Iron's type were already waiting for him. It was one stroke of fortune after another for a patient that needed all of the fortune he could get. For survival. When Iron got to Children's Hospital, an all star team of doctors and nurses were standing by. That medical team saved his life. Dr. Martin Eichelberger, chief of the hospital's pediatric surgery, was the one who operated on the teen. He dug out a thumbnail sized fragment of the 223 route, which was buried into Iron's chest. The emergency surgery lasted three hours. Here is Eichelberger speaking to the media outside the hospital had a gunshot wound that entered his abdomen, uh, went through his chest, uh, injured his spleen, his stomach, his pancreas, and his lung. Uh, It also injured his diaphragm. The shooting occurred before most students had arrived at school that day. When they showed up and saw teachers and other faculty in a panic, they started to ask questions, and word spread quickly about the morning's events.
1: Back at the school, as police fanned out through the neighborhood and helicopters searched from above, worried parents rushed to pick up the remaining students. The seventh and eighth graders heard about the shooting as soon as they arrived this morning.
3: A group was starting to like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Like one kid kind of like started panicking, um, and so they just they just stopped telling it was people. Scary.
0: Among the first members of the media to respond to the scene that morning was Stacy Cohan of WUSA Channel 9, the CBS affiliate in the Washington, D.C. market. Cohan was already in the area working on another story.
1: I just so happened to be working on an investigative piece in Bowie that morning on school buses, oddly enough, and my photographer heard the call go out on the scanner, so we ditched our story and got over there just as the first units were responding. So we were on the scene quite early.
0: The crime scene at the school where Iron was shot was carefully searched. Dr. William Vosberg, a former dentist, was the crime lab director of the Forensic Services Division of the Prince George's County Police Department. Vosberg had a lot to deal with when he showed up at the school that morning.
4: It was one of those things where the first step is secure the crime scene. But where is it? How big is it? It's huge. We don't even know where a shot was taken from.
0: For Vosberg and his team, one of the first critical steps for them at the scene was to identify the most likely area where the shot was taken.
4: We had a SWAT team that came over and briefed us what they thought, as counter snipers, where would be the best shoot location. And they had said across the street there was a bluff diagonally across the street up a hill. And of course, there was a news crew already up there with a van and they were broadcasting and commenting on
0: what was going on. Cohan said she and her cameraman were also thinking in terms of where the shooter may have been standing or lying in a prone position. She remembers being approached by Prince George's County Police that morning at the original spot where she had set up.
1: I remember them moving us. Part of that was the police moving us. Part of that was simply technology of doing our job, and we were having difficulty getting a satellite signal out. At that point, we, the media, start looking, where do we think the suspects were sitting when they fired the shot. You know, you, you do that. And so if you're looking at Benjamin Tasker, you can see woods like immediately if you're facing it. Like at the time, there was a large wooded area and a hill across it. So you're, you're scanning, trying to figure out where whoever did this might have been. And so I remember the police relocating us. And then I also remember noticing that we are very close to the junction of, of an interstate, like of a highway. So it would make means of escape quite simple.
0: After that hill across from the school was cordoned off, Prince George's County Police summoned a special canine to the scene, one that they didn't own.
4: During the height of the sniper cases, all you had to do is ask for help and you were going to get it instantly. You just put out the call, who's got this, and boom, they would bring it. And so, U.S. Marshals showed up
0: with Beacon, their gunshot residue dog. Beacon sniffed around the hill first, which was the area most people with knowledge of crime scenes assumed was the general vicinity of where the shooter was, but much to everyone's surprise, Beacon didn't detect anything there. Eventually, the dog was led toward some thick brush located a short distance north of the entrance to the school.
4: That's where the dog alerted on a tree that was down near the edge of the brush. Uh, That would be a perfect shoot location, as we later figured out.
0: If the shooter was in that spot, then there had to have been a shell casing lying around. The thick brush made conventional searching for a shell seem impossible. You couldn't simply have someone with a metal detector rummage through it. There were too many weeds, trees, bushes, and vines for all that. You basically needed a group of people to march through the area looking at every inch of ground and every square inch of ground cover above it. There weren't many bodies to spare, so Montgomery County Police called upon its class of recruits to conduct the search. The large team of recruits needed tools to dig through the thick vegetation, so police made a run to the local hardware store and bought some rakes and any other supplies that could help the recruits sort through that heavy brush. It took 30 minutes before one jubilant recruit stood up and announced to everyone within 100 yards of him that he'd found the casing. It was the first piece of hard evidence recovered since the start of the sniper shootings five days earlier. In addition to Beacon, authorities brought another dog to the scene, a bloodhound by the name of Miss She sniffed the casing and picked up a trail, which was traced from the spot of where the shooter lay through the woods, along the neighboring tennis courts and onto a parking lot. Miss lost the scent in a parking spot located on the north end of the lot. The scent may have been lost, but something very suspicious was found in that location. Courtesy of an ATF agent who was assisting in the search. It was a tarot card. On it was the image of a skeleton in armor, riding a white horse while holding a flagpole. The flag was the color black. Across the top of the card was the phrase, Call Me God, written in blue ink. On the back, there was a longer handwritten message. For you, Mr. Police. Code, Call Me God. Do not release to the press. It was a message, the first message, that the shooters had made to police. The media were not to be told of this discovery, at least not yet. Moose confirmed that a shell casing was found, but nothing else. But that isn't what people remember most from those October 7th media conferences. They remember a distressed Charles Moose sorting through the reality that a child had been shot.
2: Now, all of our victims have been innocent have been defenseless but now we're stepping over the line because our children don't deserve this
0: visibly shaken moose ended his comments by saying quote shooting a kid i guess it's getting to be really really personal now end quote cameras captured bill o'toole moose's deputy chief put his arm around his boss. The pair turned around and walked back inside police headquarters in Rockville. That clip would be shown on a loop all over the world. It would become one of the moments people most often remember whenever they think about this case. Charles Moose was becoming a household name.
2: For almost a week now, we have seen the anguish and the determination in the face of a cop who is in the middle of one of the most baddening shooting rampages in recent history. Charles Moose, Montgomery County, Maryland police chief. So composed, until the sniper shot a school kid.
0: Connie Morella served eight terms in the U.S. House and represented Maryland's 8th congressional district, which encompassed Montgomery County. Morella, a Republican who didn't always see eye to eye with the county's Democratic police chief, can still recall that specific media conference and she thought Charles Moose hit all the right notes in that moment.
3: I think you had a man who was very dedicated and was willing to be outspoken in terms of representing what he was going to do and could do.
0: Charles Moose's widow, Sandy, lives in the Tampa area. I recently interviewed Sandy at her home. She said his response to the shooting of Iron Brown perfectly encapsulated the kind of man Charles Moose was
3: he was quite sensitive i think that he came through in a clutch so much because he was sensitive and it was so surprising to people
0: while the media were digesting the shocking news of a child being shot investigators were trying to make sense of the vital clues left behind at the scene at benjamin tasker <laughs> Prince George's County Police Chief Gerald Wilson sent staff to brief Montgomery County Police and federal agents in Rockville. They showed the casing and a copy of the card. One of the lead detectives for Prince George's County Police attended that meeting, and he was becoming more uncomfortable over the open discussions about the card and what it might have meant. There were a lot of people in that room in Rockville, and he was afraid something was going to get leaked to the media. It was around that time that April Carroll got assigned to this case. Carroll, now retired, was a supervisory special agent with ATF, an agency that dedicated a lot of people and man hours to the DC sniper investigation. Carroll spent seven years working this case, and she told me that media leaks happened a lot. She soon learned that it was just one of those realities that sniper case investigators had to get used to.
1: We had had.
3: So many leaks throughout this case at so many levels from first line officers, detectives, all the way to chiefs of police as we knew it.
0: And just as that Prince George's County police homicide detective who was sitting for that meeting had suspected, the news of the tarot card was leaked. And the one who got the information first was Stacy Cohan.
1: Because I was a very young reporter, I was young and I was female and I was a crime reporter. None of those things are really in your favor, especially, you know, in the early 2000s. And so I had a lot to prove. And so my reputation was all I had. And my reputation of getting the best information first was what kept me in my position. And so after the shooting of Iron Brown, but I got a call from a very good source on the task force and was told that there was a tarot card left at the scene and was told the wording on the tarot card that was left in the scene. Then the source told me I couldn't report it, that this was a call to let me know and that at some point it needed to be released, but not yet. They were going to wait to see if the police decided to release it, the superiors did. And so there you have this really big story and your source is telling you not to release it, so what do you do?
0: Cohan told someone about the lead her source had given her, someone she trusted. After a long conversation with that person, she decided that her best bet was to sit on the information, at least for the time being.
1: Spent a very nervous evening waiting to see if somebody else would break that story. And then the next day at work, Buck, Mike Buchanan, (laughs) lumbered up to me. He leaned up against my desk and he said, so kid, tell me about this
0: tarot card. Mike Buchanan was a longtime reporter and anchor at Channel 9. He started his career as a print journalist in the 1960s before transitioning to television news. In 1970, he settled in at WUSA and became a crime reporter for the station, breaking one big story after another. Buchanan had a sterling reputation inside the WUSA newsroom. Cohan said she knew that once Mike Buchanan found out about the tarot card, that it was only a matter of time before it would be reported on. It was better that her station and her colleague, one she admired was the one to report the story instead of someone from another newsroom. Buchanan reported the discovery of the card during the 11 o'clock news on October 8th. As it turned out, the Washington Post also had confirmed it and ran a story about it the next morning. Both news outlets reported that the card stated, I am God, which wasn't correct. The card actually read, Call me God.
1: Now, Buck didn't have the wording right. Buck had, I am God. And I, and I didn't correct him, but I told him I knew more and I wouldn't tell him because the story couldn't be cra- traced to me because I needed my sources intact more than Buck did, quite frankly. I needed this investigation was going to continue. So I confirmed what he had. And we had a long discussion with our news director, and it was eventually decided outside myself that we were going to release this, that it was decided that I would just be the producer on the story, and and it could be Buck's face.
0: Just as Cohan had anticipated, law enforcement was angry about the leak, especially Charles Moose. The shooter was clear about not releasing the information to the media. Police wanted the dialogue to continue. In the eyes of detectives and Moose, That piece of breaking news seemed to hurt the chances of that. It wasn't long before the national media started reporting on police's frustration with the local media. Good
2: evening. In the Maryland suburbs of Washington, D.C. tonight, the hunt continues for a methodical and cunning killer. And now it appears the sniper may have left a tantalizing clue, a calling card. Authorities are not happy that information got out. And after a full week of murders and the terror that they have brought with them, understandably, the frustrations and anxieties are approaching a breaking point.
0: Moose was visibly angry. With his hands clasped behind his back, he said this during his next media conference.
2: The people in my community have asked the police department to work the case. So I beg of the media, let us do our job. If the community wants you to do it, they will call today and we will have a vote. And if it's decided that Channel 9 is going to investigate this case, then so be it.
0: He went on to say, quote, I have not received any message that the citizens of Montgomery County, want Channel 9 or The Washington Post or any other media outlet to solve this case, if they do, Then let me know. We will go and do other police work, and we will turn this case over to the media, and you can solve it. Moose would say later that his statements during that media conference were at least partially an act. He wanted to communicate to the sniper that the leak was not his fault and not something his agency wanted. For her part, Cohan has never revealed who told her about the tarot card and never will. Following the leak, Moose's relationship with Cohan's former employer never really improved.
1: We were definitely on his naughty list for sure and and i think unfairly so you know unfairly so we have a job to do he has a job to do and i would never if i had thought releasing that information was going to gravely compromise their investigation then i might have thought twice if i thought there's no way this is going to get out then i would have fought like crazy to say nothing but it was going to come out. And if it was going to come out, I would rather have somebody with integrity like Mike Buchanan reporting it in the most fair and careful way. And that's what happened.
0: Mike Buchanan died in 2020. He said during a 2012 interview that he had actually contacted Montgomery County Police and offered them an opportunity to weigh in on the information. He specifically asked at least one high-ranking official there Whether the department would have any objection to the story, no one objected. Dave Statter, a former reporter at WUSA, was a friend of Buchanan's. He remembers having that conversation with his friend.
3: They gave them an opportunity to weigh in on this story before Channel 9 aired this information. Mike had a great reputation with law enforcement in the area. He would do tough stories, but he was always fair. And I know when Mike tells me, no, we gave them an opportunity to tell us why this would mess up the case, why this information shouldn't be out to the public. Montgomery County chose not to participate in that. And the Prince George's County people where the, the shooting occurred, where this was found, had
0: no problem with what they were reporting. Police refocused on the clue itself, because it was a big one. The tarot card, as Vosberg explained to me, had the potential to be an evidence jackpot. There was already a scent on the card that the bloodhound detected. There could have been traces of DNA on it left by the person who dropped it. Maybe there was a fingerprint. Maybe something could be pulled from handwriting analysis. Those were just possibilities. But that was something investigators didn't previously have, and at the very least, It appeared as though the shooter wanted to communicate. Maybe there would be more of that. Meanwhile, the young victim in the shooting, Iron Brown, was on the road to a full recovery, but there were a few scary moments while he was under medical care. He remained in critical condition for a period of time following his three-hour surgery. Based on what his insides looked like, it was probably a surprise that his surgery didn't take longer.
2: And I remember they explained to me, it looked like a, a bomb had went off inside of me. That's how much damage was done.
0: Iron was under the watchful eye of skilled nurses for several weeks. During those first 10 days or so, they frantically rushed into his room a number of times.
2: They put me in a self-induced coma and I was in a, a coma a little over a week. And it's, it's weird because I was conscious throughout me being in a coma to a degree. I can even remember moments waking up just pulling out tubes that was inside of my throat and things of that nature. And it was It was pretty intense.
0: As investigators regain their focus, they process the promising development that the snipers left behind evidence at the scene of the October 7th shooting. It seemed the investigation was about to turn a corner, but that didn't happen at the speed that detectives had hoped. The region traditionally known as Northern Virginia was about to become part of the sniper's sprawling shooting range. Next, on Chasing Ghosts, the hunt for the DC snipers. The trajectory of the bullet would have gone right past the trooper. One witness reported hearing a single shot as a man was pumping gas. He's lying on the car. And a white van just went by with two guys in it. Chasing Ghosts is presented by Law & Crime. Music and production by Corey Hiltman. All 911 and dispatch calls were provided by the National Law Enforcement Museum in Washington, D.C. You may follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Holt Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. Chasing Ghosts is available on Law & Crimes website, as well as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get podcasts.